let's turn to Genesis chapter 49. And we plan today to finish out in the morning the book of Genesis. We'll be in Genesis 49 and 50. I'm titling the sermon this morning, The Legacy of Jacob and Joseph. We're finishing out chapter 49 of Genesis, starting in verse 28, working our way through chapter 50, uh, all the way to the end. Last time in Genesis, we saw Jacob uttering prophetic blessings upon and oracles upon his sons, uh, his 12 sons, and he emphasized, uh, though he rebuked early on in, in that oracle, he rebuked the sin of certain sons of his. Nevertheless, on the whole, he emphasized their proper reliance on the God of the covenant, the God who had made his covenant with them and who would stick with them uh, through the years to come. And now it's time for Jacob to die. As we'll see in our text today, this covers both the death of Jacob and then later the death of Joseph. And we see their legacy they leave behind for the people of Israel as they pass out of this world. The big idea in this last section of Genesis is that as their legacy, Jacob and Joseph pointed Israel to their good God and his almighty plan. As their legacy, Jacob and Joseph pointed Israel to their good God and his almighty plan. As we explain the account, first of all, we have Jacob's command in his death, and that takes up the majority of our text this morning. Jacob's command in his death. We see the command given, then the command obeyed. So first of all, the, the last section of chapter 49, verses 28 through 33, uh, Jacob gives a command right before he dies of what to do with his body. Verse 28, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. He has a very singular focus, Jacob does right before he gets in bed again and dies. His singular focus is that he be buried in the land of promise, in the family burial place, the cave of Machpelah. And thus he would be identified not only with Abraham and Isaac, but with the God of Abraham and Isaac, with the promises of that God, who had promised the land of Canaan to them, though... The sons of Israel were now sojourning in Egypt. And so in his death, he was pointing Israel to their good God and his almighty plan to bring them back into that land 
And he was indicating, uh, perhaps in a, in a uh, more subtle way, his hope in the resurrection. God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob much, and he'd promised their offspring much. But they were strangers. They were sojourners in the earth. They never received the full promises in this life. But that did not leave them in despair. That left them in hope. Because God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. He would raise them to see him face to face in the flesh and to receive the culmination of all his redemptive promises with the rest of his people. Death was not the end. Death was planting the body in hope of a great harvest to come. And uh, as Richard Belcher puts it, he says, burial in this cave would not only show family solidarity, but it would demonstrate that God's promise to give the land of Canaan to the descendants of Abraham was still a promise that the sons of Jacob should embrace. Don't forget you have a promised land that's not here. Don't forget God's promises. And the scripture here, as it does a few other places in Genesis, it speaks of Jacob's death. And notice, particularly here, it's, it's particularly clear that it's not talking about his burial so much as his death, his spirit leaving his body. It speaks of it as him breathing his last and being gathered to his people. It certainly seems that this speaks of the fact, again, that death is not the end of human existence. But Jacob is gathered to his fathers. He's gathered to Abraham and Isaac, who, like him, are now on the other side of death, awaiting the full realization of God's promises. So that was the command given, and now Jacob is dead. This brings us to chapter 50, verses 1 through 14, where we see the command obeyed, and we see it described at great length here. Um, that Jacob's sons, with Joseph taking the lead, did as their father had commanded them. Verse 1 of chapter 50. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. A lot of honor given to the father of the man who had saved Egypt from disaster. Verse 4. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, or that may be an idiom for uh, the tomb I prepared for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. 
And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mitzrayim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephraim the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. As we we look at this section briefly, first of all, there's an emphasis on Jacob's face in death. As soon as Jacob had breathed his last, Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. This recalls God's promise to Jacob as Jacob had gone down to Egypt. He had promised Jacob that Joseph would close Jacob's eyes in death. Joseph would be right there. And he was. And this was a, a tender but, but good time, even in Jacob's death. He thought he would never see Joseph again for many years. And now Jacob is the one to weep over him and, and kiss him in his passing. And Joseph had his servants, the physicians. Perhaps this distinguishes them from the normal um, priests who might have done this and who might have included more um, pagan magical things in what they did. But Joseph had his servants, the physicians, embalm his father, um, basically uh, making him a mummy, if you want to think of it that way, <laughs> as we think about ancient Egypt. Let me read you something quick about this process, uh, which Moses goes to the trouble to, to detail a little bit for us, so this is applicable. Um, John Currid writes, The process of embalming in ancient Egypt became a complex and scientific process during the Middle Kingdom period, which was this period. It first involved the removal of the internal organs of the deceased, which were then placed in canopic jars. The body was treated with, uh, with natron, a dehydrating sodium carbonate. The skin was also treated with resin and spices. It ought to be noted that the Hebrew verb for embalming here means to make something spicy. The body was then wrapped in many layers of linen and finally placed in a wooden coffin. By the time of the New Kingdom, just a little later, the process of embalming or mummification became quite refined. It often preserved the hair, flesh, and nails of the deceased. Why the Egyptians did this is clear. They believed that death was not the end of life. Rather, life could be everlasting. Because of that perspective, they laid great emphasis on the preservation of the dead in as close to lifelike form as possible. The survival of the body was a necessary requirement for continual existence beyond death. That was the Egyptians' pagan view of it. But many commentators note that... Um, that Jacob and, and later Joseph were embalmed for largely practical reasons. They wanted their bodies preserved so that they could be buried in the promised land, right? 
So there was a, a practical side of it, why Joseph had his father Jacob embalmed this way and why he was later embalmed similarly. And the text here talks about how it took 40 days for this process of preparing Jacob's body. That's very, very much in line with ancient records we have of this process in Egypt. Um, obviously, it wasn't written by someone who didn't know what they were talking about historically. <laughs> so, um, just interesting there. And it says the Egyptians mourned for Jacob 70 days, probably including the 40 days of mummification, but a total of 70 days. Um, that wasn't far short of what, um, in that day, they would have mourned for a pharaoh. There was great honor given to Jacob as Joseph's father. Again, the father of the man who had saved the nation. And imagine that. A Hebrew shepherd, well, a tribal chieftain, but a Hebrew shepherd being given this sort of honor. Um, Truly, through Joseph, the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had blessed the nations, and they recognized that. And then Joseph, and it's not clear, people discuss this, it's not clear why Joseph doesn't directly talk to Pharaoh. Probably something about court protocol here, I don't know. But Jacob speaks to Pharaoh's servants to pass something on to Pharaoh and get official permission from Pharaoh to go to Canaan and bury his father there in the cave of Machpelah. Joseph has no problem getting the permission from Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, absolutely. And and the way Joseph... Sorry, I'm getting Jacob and Joseph mixed up this morning. I'm sorry about that. Uh, The way Joseph puts the request uh, is a way that would have appealed to Pharaoh. He says, my father hewed out or prepared a tomb for himself beforehand, and he wants to be buried there. Well, uh, in Egypt, many kings, priests, and nobles prepared tombs for themselves while they were still living. It was a concept that would have connected with them and with their honor. So Pharaoh said, absolutely, go bury your father where he wanted you to, where he, to, where he made you swear to do. Verses 7 through 9, we see there was quite a retinue that went along with the, the coffin and the body all the way to Canaan. Not just the family of Israel, not just Joseph's household, not just his brothers, all, all the, the important people and dignitaries of Egypt, the elders of Pharaoh's household, and the elders of the nation, everybody who was anybody, or at least a representation of them, they all went along to, to help mourn. That's saying a lot. And there was a military escort of chariots. A little ironic, as this is a peaceful exodus out of Egypt, escorted by Pharaoh's chariots and Later, the Israelites will be chased out by chariots. Um, Just ironic, I suppose. But the the big point in all this, of course, is that Jacob's sons um, exactly and extensively obeyed their father's command. They realized how important this was, uh, that their father be buried in the land of promise. And it, it words it in such a way that it should sound familiar to us. It's, it's basically saying it's happening all over again. The same thing that happened when Abraham died. His, his sons, Ishmael and Isaac, came together to bury him. Um, when Isaac died, his sons, Jacob and Esau, came together to bury him. 
and it, it's just very similar wording each time in Genesis, um, that all the sons participate in the burial, going to verses 12 to 13. There's, this is such a big event, such a loud lamentation and weeping that the Canaanites take notice. And from their perspective, it's a bunch of Egyptians, uh, such as the pomp of the Egyptian court involved with this. And they name the place where they, before they even get to the burying spot, but when they just cross the Jordan River, uh, there's a spot, a threshing floor where they stop to have a week of mourning. And this place gets named after the mourning of these Egyptians. Uh, Mizraim, Mitzrayim is Hebrew for Egyptian or Egypt. Um, and Abel is a play on words. It can mean brook or stream, but uh, it's, it sounds very similar to the word for mourning. So implying the stream of tears produced by the mourning of the Egyptians. Well, so much for... Jacob's command in his death, he is buried in the land of promise just as his fathers were. Now we come to what is probably the capstone thematically of the whole book, and especially of the story of Jacob and Joseph. Verses 15 through 21 of chapter 50. After Jacob's command in his death, we find Joseph's reassurance to his brothers. Joseph's reassurance to his brothers. Verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead. By the way, remember back earlier in Genesis. Remember what Esau had said once about his father dying. The days of mourning for my father are approaching. And when my father Isaac dies, I'll kill my brother Jacob. Remember that? So what are Joseph's brothers thinking now that their father is dead? Verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Verse 16, so they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Commentators doubt whether this is a real story or not, the way they, this happens. Uh, I can't say for sure. But, but they say, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him. Again, fulfilling his dreams about them. His brothers falling down before him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. <clears throat> Again, the manner of how the story is told strongly suggests many think that the brothers are coming up with a story. Maybe Jacob said something like this at some point. Maybe he didn't. But just now they're coming out with this because, as, as the text says, now they're afraid. <laughs> it hits them afresh. Was Joseph just 
being going easy on us because dad was still alive? They still haven't totally dealt with their own guilt and shame, at least in relationship to Joseph. And notice they call, they speak of Jacob to Joseph as uh, your father, Joseph, not our father, your father, appealing to the special bond between Jacob and Joseph that had started the whole mess a long time ago. You know, Joseph's brothers had once used a third party to send Joseph's bloody coat to Jacob as a lie to cover up what they'd done to Joseph. They'd sent someone. They hadn't even gone themselves at first. Um, And they'd sent Joseph's bloody coat to their father Jacob with a contrived story. Now, the way it words it is very clear. Before they come to Joseph themselves, they send a third party to Joseph, probably with a contrived story. Uh, but this time to plead forgiveness for what they'd done to him many years ago. Old habits die hard, especially for sinners, and shame and guilt are very hard to shake, even for redeemed sinners. That they still uh, they feel this distance be- between them. They still feel very defensive, like he might hurt us. <laughs> so first of all, they send a messenger on their behalf. In fact, it's just true that shame and guilt will always haunt us so long as we have an insufficient view of our great and good God. Their minds are still focused on what they did to Joseph. But as we hear from Joseph's mouth now, he has an entirely different context for coming to grips with their past guilt. Joseph does have his eyes on the majesty and goodness of God. And so he has an entirely different view of the situation. It says that Joseph weeps when he gets their message. This is, uh, there's several times in the book of Genesis, it emphasizes that Joseph wept in his relationship with his brothers. This is, I believe, the seventh time he weeps. Could have been a number of reasons for that. But particularly because after 17 years of kindness in Egypt, they still don't trust him. They still don't trust him. And he weeps because this should all be taken care of now. Don't they understand? Don't they understand I haven't been two-faced for 17 years? Don't they understand they're safe here? And so his response, when they come and fall down before him in person, his response is, don't fear. What, what do you, who do you think I am? Am I in the place of God? Meaning, implying, vengeance belongs to God. That's God's job, not mine. If there were vengeance to exact here, that wouldn't be my place. Though I am one of the most powerful men in the ancient world. That doesn't mean it's my job to right the wrongs from back then. I'm totally willing to leave that in God's court. And besides, look what God has done. Look what God was doing the whole time from the very beginning. Yes, you meant it for evil. God, he doesn't say God salvaged it for good. He said God meant it for good. 
The whole time, God intended something very good here. And look, look at it. We're all alive. He preserved the, the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a great multitude, alive to this day. That's what this is all about. Not just about your sin. As John Currid says, Joseph simply believes that God even uses the sinfulness of humans to bring about his good purposes for the world. This theological concept is no stranger to the rest of Scripture. He lists some. As Proverbs 16, 9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but Yahweh directs his steps. There is no stronger statement, he says, regarding the true meaning of the sovereignty of God in Scripture than what Joseph says here to his brothers. We're right to often quote this as a real-life example of God's providence, his sovereign providence at work in everything, including very evil actions of people. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Richard Belcher kind of zooms out a bit and says, this, this is not only a summary of the Joseph story, it's also a summary of the theology of the Bible. The sinfulness of human beings cannot hinder the good purposes of God to restore his good creation. Genesis starts with the creation and then the fall. But God says, I'm not thwarted by any of this. I have a wonderful plan of redemption from eternity past that I will accomplish. That will bring, bring me great glory and great praise for my creation. That was me, not Belcher. I'm going back to his quote here. The lack of faith in Abraham and Sarah, he says, did not stop God from fulfilling his wondrous promise of a child. God was able to transform the greedy character of Jacob into a man who trusted in the promises of God. Looking forward to Exodus, he says, not even a powerful ruler like Pharaoh will be able to destroy the people of God. The ultimate example of this principle is that the wicked opposition toward Jesus that led to his crucifixion was used by God to accomplish the redemption of his people, Acts 2.23. On this basis, God's people can live in confidence that his purposes will be accomplished for their good. We obviously need to come back to this in the application. But this is such a paramount theme in Genesis. Yeah, human evil, human evil and even demonic evil is real. But what creatures mean for evil, God means for good. God has lost control of nothing. And we have to look beyond how someone has hurt us and trust in the God who is so much greater than these puny humans who do us wrong. We have to look that high above the creation to the creator, as Joseph did. And when we see that, it'll completely transform our reactions. We'll come back to that. As we finish out the chapter, verses 22 through 26, we see Joseph's legacy for his people. Starting in verse 22. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. Which, by the way, we just happen to know the Egyptians prized that particular number of years as like the perfect lifespan. 
just interesting. He lived 110 years. Verse 23, And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Maker, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own, or literally, they were born on Joseph's knees. But that's, that's the idea, that he counted them as his own children. Verse 24, And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And there we leave the people of Israel in Egypt for 400 years or so. Until the next book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, which Moses also wrote. Turn back to Genesis 15. I want you to remember what God had told Abraham about how this would all play out. Genesis 15, verses 12 through 21. God is officially making his covenant with Abraham on this occasion. This is before the the added element of circumcision, but... Uh, God is making a covenant with Abraham to give him, at this point he's named Abram, to give him the land of Canaan to him and to his offspring. And to give him an heir from his own body to inherit it. Verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. That is, it's not time yet for judgment to fall on the Amorites, or the, another name for the Canaanites there. It's not time for judgment to fall on them because they're going, I'm going to allow them to get worse before I judge them and bring Israel in to replace them. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces, uh, divided... Uh, animal uh, victims in this covenant ceremony. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. It was God's plan from the beginning. This was not a... a a detour that was uh, a, a whim of God's at some point. It was God's plan all along for Israel to be sojourners for 400 years in a land that was not theirs and to become oppressed, to be enslaved before they were brought out and rescued, redeemed under Moses. This was God's plan all along. In Genesis 46, God had said to Jacob, as Joseph had invited Jacob to come to Egypt to live, Genesis 46, verse 3, 
Then he said, I am, the, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. Which could refer both to the body of Jacob and to the people of Israel being brought again from Egypt. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. This was all according to the plan of God. And as Joseph promised, as Joseph reminded his brothers and their children and their children's children, etc., he said, God will surely visit you. God has promised he will follow through. When he does, take my bones with you so I can be buried in Canaan. They can wait. You don't have to do with me as we did for our father Jacob. I don't have to be taken to Canaan now. I am so confident that God will keep his promise that you can wait until he does. When God rescues you out of this land, take me with you. So Exodus thirteen nineteen, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. Not only did they take Joseph's bones out of Egypt, those bones made it all the way to the promised land after it was conquered. Joshua twenty four thirty two, As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem, in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. How fitting that Genesis should end, not just with a coffin, not just with death. Genesis had begun in Eden, now it ends with a coffin. But it also ends with a promise, God will surely visit you. As Derek Kidner says, Joseph's dying words epitomized the hope in which the Old Testament, and indeed the New, would fall into expectant silence. God will surely visit you. We are in a fallen world. Death is real, but that's not the end of the story. We await the end of the story. So again, the big idea of this text... As their legacy, Jacob and Joseph pointed Israel to their good God and his almighty plan. So as we apply this account, we need to be pointed to the same good God and his same almighty plan. First of all, we need to trust in God's great plan when facing evil. Trust in God's great plan when facing evil. Joseph had great evil done to him. He didn't say it wasn't a big deal when it happened. He couldn't forgive it just because it wasn't that bad. That's not why we forgive, because we can uh, say, well, it wasn't really a big deal in the first place, so therefore I can forgive you. Joseph had great evil perpetrated upon him. But he was able to face that evil with joyful forgiveness without a drop of vengeance. How is that possible? Well, it was possible because Joseph knew how how evil 
the human actions had been, but he also knew something much more important. He knew the great and good God who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. According to his own great and good purposes. How could Joseph warmly welcome and provide for his brothers? Whom he would always remember as those petty, malicious men who had stopped short of murdering him just because they realized they could make a profit if they let him be kidnapped and enslaved. Well, not only did Joseph refuse to punish his brothers when he had absolute control over their lives, there was no one to tell him no. He wasn't going to go to prison if he did something to his brothers. He could have their lives. Why didn't he? He, And not only did he refuse to punish them, he, he persistently spoke peace and comfort to them even when their own consciences were tormented. Remember, he did this back when he first revealed himself to them, but he's still doing it 17 years later. His attitude's the same. The resentment didn't build back up again. How is that possible? How could he do that? Well, when you are entranced, when you're focused on the glory of God, the glory of God, the Almighty Sovereign who sustains and rules and directs all things as part of His great and good plan, puny humans, even very wicked ones, they don't seem so important anymore. When God's goodness and glory have gripped your soul, the greatness of His all-inclusive plan for history, that puts your your most terrible experiences in perspective. It doesn't say they are no longer tragedies, but it puts them in perspective. But you have to believe that he truly is God and that he alone is God. To really believe that God is God is to believe that he is firmly in control of everything for good. He's not just another creature blown here and there. Maybe he's in control, maybe he isn't. Though man and angels intend great evil, even their actions are intended by God for unimaginable good. And it is God's intent which always succeeds. Psalm 33, 10-11 The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. It doesn't matter what you're facing or what you have gone through. None of it was an interruption of God's good plan. As John Currid again says, there is no doctrine so clearly taught in the Bible as the sovereignty of God. God is grandly portrayed as the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. To him be honor and eternal dominion. 1 Timothy 6. Burkhoff summarizes the doctrine as follows. The sovereignty of God is strongly emphasized in Scripture. He He is represented as creator and his will as the cause of all things. 
He is clothed with absolute authority over the hosts of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. He upholds all things with his almighty power and determines the ends which they are destined to serve. He rules as king in the most absolute sense of the word, and all things are dependent on him and subservient to him. The Bible teaches that at this very moment, John Corrid says, God sits enthroned over the universe. He is preserving and maintaining his creation by his sovereign hand. Everything in the universe, the whens, the wheres, the hows, and the whys, is determined and directed by the matchless, supreme God. So trust in God's great plan when facing evil. This will do a few different things for you. This will allow you to acknowledge God's role as avenger, first of all. If you believe what we say we believe, who God is, you can let God be God. Let him take care of vengeance. He's perfectly capable, and I'm not. He's perfectly capable of perfect justice. Romans 12, 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Don't let evil cause you to do evil, in other words. But overcome evil with good. That's your privilege as one of God's people. So, if you trust in God's great plan, you can let him be the avenger. Trusting God's great plan also includes trusting his plan of redemption. His plan of redemption. If we really believe that God the Father truly forgives the vilest sinner who believes in Jesus Christ, if we really believe that the blood of Jesus is sufficient payment for any evil deed, then we will be ready and eager to forgive those who sin against us. There's no way around that. As Christians. Now, again, uh, you might be tempted to, to be taken off track with a false definition of forgiveness. <laughs> um, full forgiveness and reconciliation are only possible if the offender repents and asks forgiveness. Our culture doesn't understand the basis for forgiveness, and so it thinks forgiveness is just. Pretending the offense is no big deal, rather than facing it, granting a full pardon for it. And um, there are such things, good things, like tolerance or forbearance with people in love. But even that is not full forgiveness. All those things are Christian virtues, but they're not all the same. So, there's a lot there to the doctrine of forgiveness, really. So I just wanted to add that necessary context. But if we believe what we say we believe about the gospel, 
we will never be able to refuse someone forgiveness. Are you ready to forgive? Is that your attitude already for your part? Are you ready to forgive? Or are you eager to harbor resentment? Are you like that father in Jesus' parable, running to meet the prodigal son before he even gets there? Welcoming the sinner before they can get the words of confession out of their mouths. Are you like the father? Or are you more like the older brother of the prodigal who resented even his father for forgiving like that? Are you a Christian? Do you bear the name of Christ? The one who died for your iniquities? How dare you bear the name of Jesus if you're not willing to forgive a repentant sinner. If you hold a repentant sinner at arm's length, that's not Christ-like. That's not the gospel. Ephesians 4, 31-32, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice, all desire for someone else's damage. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. That's what Joseph did. Most of us probably have never had things done to us as bad as Joseph had done to him. Really, we haven't. Now, some, maybe some of you have. I'm not discounting that possibility, but that's not my point. Point is, Joseph knew what he was talking about when he, he was modeling God's forgiveness. And we have a better model than that. Jesus, who's, uh, who was put on the cross for our sins, and yet he loves us. How can we do less? I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying it's the Christian thing to do. Now we get to the second and last application. Not only trust in God's great plan when facing evil, but trust in God's good promises when facing death. Trust in God's good promises when facing death. Both Jacob and Joseph faced death by clinging to God's promises and staking everything on that. They wanted their remains buried in Canaan, the land God had promised to their offspring in connection with his promises to redeem their fallen world. Joseph left a legacy of hope in the fulfillment of the exodus God had promised. As Hebrews 11 puts it, verse 22, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. That was an act of faith, Hebrews says. Because he was looking forward to the fulfillment of God's redemptive promises. What about you? This is for you. To face death with God's promises. This is for all of you. Whether you've just been diagnosed with a terminal illness. Or whether you have a moment of dread before a fatal accident. And just a moment to think about it. Or whether you're sitting here and you're a, a young adult, a child, 
and it's just hitting you, you know, I'm going to die one day. When you contemplate your own mortality, what does it drive you to do? Does it drive you to squeeze more comfort and pleasure out of this life before it runs out? I better make hay while the sun shines, because once I die, that's it. Or does it drive you to make a name for yourself so that hopefully people will remember you in some happy way or at least some impressive way after you die? At least they'll remember me. (laughs) By the way, people can do even horrible things just so maybe they'll be remembered. Or do you fall back on God's promises in Jesus Christ when you think about death? That's the only thing that will prove worthy of your trust. God's promises in Jesus Christ. Jesus told us in Matthew 16, 25, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Eternity is coming, which will be introduced by Judgment Day. And whatever you thought you gained in this life, it won't matter then. So are you facing death and the life to come with God's promises in Christ. We have a the touching story of Jesus' tenderness in John 11 with his friends when one of his friends, Lazarus, died. And he's talking with the sisters, Mary and Martha. And Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, earlier that is, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. She was focused on resurrection as an abstract concept out there more. Jesus said, no, look at me. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. This is the Christian hope. This is the Christian's confidence. This is what sets us apart from the world that is scared of death. This is why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're they're temporary, they, they pass away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know, next verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 1, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Speaking of the resurrection body. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. 
If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. The Holy Spirit is our guarantee of eternal life. So, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Are you of good courage when you think about death? Question one of the Heidelberg Catechism is famous because it it takes aim at this very issue. And it answers it so completely. The question is, what is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. And I want to close by quoting a modern hymn that attempts to capture the heart of this catechism question and answer. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. What is our only confidence? That our souls to him belong. Who holds our days within his hand? What comes apart from his command? And what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. Oh, sing hallelujah, our hope springs eternal. Oh, sing hallelujah, now and ever we confess Christ, our hope, in life and death. What truth can calm the troubled soul? God is good. God is good. Where is is his grace and goodness known? In our great Redeemer's blood. Who holds our faith when fears arise? Who stands above the stormy trial? Who sends the waves that bring us nigh unto the shore, the rock of Christ? Unto the grave, what shall we sing? Christ, he lives. Christ, he lives. And what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with him. There we will rise to meet the Lord. Then sin and death will be destroyed. And we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forevermore. Christ is our only hope, our only possible hope in life and death. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, there's not a lot more to say. It's just left for us to believe it. Help us to trust your greatness and your goodness. Help us to trust that you are who you say you are, the creator and sustainer of all things and the one who guides all things to your 
predetermined ends. And you are good and do good. You intend nothing for evil in the end. You work all things together for our good and for your glory. So help us to do the hard work of applying that to our trials, to our hurts and fears. When others sin against us or we sin against others, help us to apply the gospel of God who is sovereign and who is good. Help everyone here to do that, even if they've never done it before. Help them to believe the gospel that our sin is not greater than God, but rather God has worked all things together for the redemption of sinners to his great glory. Please bring sinners to the Savior today as well. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.